Welcome to Big Apple School Podcast. This is Mike. And this is John. And today we're talking about the topic of redefining the concept of the middle class. So, I got a question for you, John. Mm-hmm. What is the middle class in your mind? Okay, right. So, when I did a bit of sociology at university about 40 years ago, I remember the middle class being defined as the clients of, if you like, the uh, the assistance to the bourgeoisie capitalists, the owners of the means of production. So they'd be like the solicitors and the accountants who whose interests were aligned to the bourgeoisie, though they weren't actual owners of factories, as opposed to the working class who were the people who laboured in the factories. But that's, of course, a very simple definition of the middle class, and I think it's somewhat outdated. You know, it's interesting you say that, because the middle class, the concept of that, keeps changing. So what you were told 40 years ago actually changed in my time when I was growing up, mm-hmm. and it's changing now, again. And I have a very much more simpler definition of middle class than that, actually, what you learned in school. For me, you know, middle class is essentially an economic earning and spending bracket. So the middle class makes a certain range of money and spe- has a spending habit of uh, a certain class. Yeah. So if you uh, and if you make a certain so if you make money as a middle class, but you spend it out of the range of your spending habit, for, for, for example, so let's say you make middle class income, but you spend money like an upper class, you're going to move a class. Yeah. So you're probably going to drop down a class. And so it's, it's more to do with, so it's really income expense. Yeah, to me, it's a certain type of income, it's not a certain type of expense. And that's kind of how I define the middle class. Yeah. So if you roll back the time, let's say 200 years and beyond, yeah, there are only two kinds of really economic classes, the very rich and the very poor. Yeah, so the very upper class and the very low class. Yeah. Um, and they say that the, the triumph of 20th and 21st century economics is really the rise of the middle class, this class in the middle. And, and that itself, the middle class itself, can also now be divided into subsections. So upper middle, lower middle, and vice versa. Yeah, Mike, and the, the idea that there was been feudal times, you know, say 800, 900 years ago, you had the king and the nobility, and you had a number of senior clerics bishops, clergymen, and then you had peasants. You had a tiny, tiny mercantile class of traders, but that those traders, that the numbers grew and grew, but they were still such a very small number until the Industrial Revolution. And it was only from the 18th century in Britain and Holland and in the rest of Europe in the 19th century, and North America in the 19th century, that a middle class became a significant became significant in terms of numbers and of course in economic and then a later political power after all it was the rise of the middle class in terms of numbers that led to the changes in um the British constitution, which uh, spread the vote from very few people to ever-expanding franchise number of people who can vote throughout the 19th century, starting with, for instance, the 1832 Reform Act. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, 
if you roll back, it's interesting because we don't really think about what is a middle class, although the vast majority of us are born into that class, right? So uh, for me, you know, um, going back in that history, what you were saying, what would it be like living in a, in a society where literally you're either rich, very rich, or very poor? And there's nothing in between. And there's no, there's no concept of social mobility. You're mm. locked in that destiny. And that itself is the definition of anti-freedom. And freedom, the concept of freedom is actually very highly linked to the concept of middle class, I think. But, you know, before we get into that, the concept of those two, um, what actually are the traits of a middle class lifestyle and culture? What actually are those? Yeah, what, what kind of housing, food, education, and entertainment do the middle class buy and spend their time in? Yeah, and this, this is the expense part, right? And so if you think about it, so if think about myself, for example, born into the 80s, yeah, um, you know, I'm living in an apartment with two rooms, yeah, watching Ninja Turtles, eating pizza, yeah, wearing Nikes. These are all the traits, the spending habits of the middle class. And these are all products designed for the middle class because the upper classes enjoyed a very different kind of entertainment. And the lower classes enjoyed some of that, but they didn't have the luxury to, say, dress themselves in Nike shoes in those times, right? So I think it's sort of a, you know, I know there's, a, there's like a sociological definition of what a middle class is, but I think it really comes down to the flow of money, what comes in and what goes out. Yeah, it's kind of the routine kind of behavior of that. So I just want to know, I mean, you are, uh, but, you know, the, the question for me is, of course, what's middle class? What was middle class like when you were growing up in Britain, in Bath? Yeah, I would say it, middle class is more of a, a state of mind rather than actually the, the, the size of your bank balance. Um, it's to do with aspiration. Um, in my case, my, my parents weren't particularly well off. Mm. Um, I suppose we'd have been defined as very much lower middle class. But there was an aspiration of my parents that I would go to university and they pushed me and pushed me and pushed me. Whereas oh, most, not all, uh, working class people do not have that aspiration. They don't read to their children. They send their children to school because the law tells them to. Mm. And when the kids come home, they put them in front of the TV these days. They didn't, you know, 40, 50 years ago, more people didn't have televisions. But um, the, the, the lack of aspiration is, is perhaps the difference for, for, for your offspring. So that's not universally the case. Um, uh, many of my friends I was at university came from very much working class backgrounds and it was their parents pushed them. So these, this uh, aspirationalism did trickle down the classes, if you like. Um, but I think it's perhaps in Britain at least, it's now ossified, sorry, um, has become frozen in as much as that the people who are at the bottom of the socioeconomic pile, the very much working class, do not have this aspiration anymore. And there is less social mobility than there was um, 30, 40 years ago because of this. So you're telling me that um, I mean, we call this the middle class dream mm -hmm. and people aspire and they put time and effort in to reach this dream of the middle class, mm -hmm. right? Now, it's interesting. I just want to make a note here. You call them working class, mm -hmm. right? So 
so for you, when you were growing up, it was middle class, working class. And yes, the working class is kind of the politically correct way to define that, you know, one step lower mm -hmm. than the middle class, right? The question I have for you is, is, but a lot of people in this working class are not working. Mm -hmm. Yes, they're mm -hmm. on what's called social welfare. Mm -hmm. Yes. So how do you call them working class? Yes, well, they're, they're called, well, the Mark, Marx would have described them as the lumpen proletariat. They are the people who keep wages low because the, of the fear of unemployment. And the, the, the pool of unemployed yeah. means that the working class are kept in their place, as it were. But, of course, we've moved away from that um, pure sociological definition of proletariat and, and, and bourgeoisie um, factory owners. Today, yes, there is um, a large number of people who live their entire lives um, on on welfare or the state or whatever or whatever you want to describe it as, and yet they are frequently lumped in with the working working class. But I say I perceive there is an increasing um, split between the two types of people. They both may have the same um, economic. Um, or spending power, if you like, Heart, some provided by the state, the other provided by their own efforts, but in low-paid jobs. But those who work despise the ones who do not. And uh, often there is, is conflict there, I believe, um, or the beginnings of. What do you think? Uh, it's interesting because, um, ironically, I've met people um, who are on welfare, mm -hmm. so the unemployed class, mm -hmm. Because it's actually cheaper than working. Mm. Yeah. So oh, have, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yes. So after all the, the taxes and all the breaks and all the benefits, it actually is more profitable economically to not work mm -hmm. and live off welfare than mm -hmm. to actually go and do low-paying jobs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, low-paying wage jobs. So um, I don't know why there is that distinction, but I, I don't know how the economics of that works. But like I said, I mean, for me, yes, the middle, the basically you can have a middle-class dream. But ultimately, dollars and cents mm -hmm. is what defines that middle-class dream to, for me. Mm -hmm. And I've seen in the social mobility in a way that people from the basically the lower working classes, mm -hmm. yes, save up money to the point where they reach the middle class and then go into the upper class levels. Mm -hmm. You know, people with like three, four million dollar properties, investments. Mm -hmm. And I've seen vice versa, where the upper class people spend so much money, yes, mm -hmm. that they and they end up becoming middle class. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I've seen that as well. So, it's it's all kind of movable. Yes, mm -hmm. the, the social mobility is there, but when it comes to the chronically unemployed, you might be right in a sense that they are lacking that middle class dream aspiration. Yeah, and therefore they, I mean, like in Australia, we have what's called three generation poverty. Yeah, if the grandfather was on welfare, the father is on welfare, and the father is on welfare, the son is on welfare, and the chain just goes on and on yeah, and on and on. And so, I think that perhaps that um, I would say that maybe uh, Australia and Britain are slightly not hardcore capitalist countries. They're slightly on the sort of the left leaning. Yes, I would say more social benefit. Yeah, there is yeah, more social. Yeah, there's yeah. more social welfare provision in, in Britain, Austra yeah. Australia, than there is in, say, the United States, yes. or say, tiger economies of the Far East. I would yes, think. Yeah? Yes. Uh, well, these tiger economies themselves are becoming more leftist. Really? So a lot more central social benefits, a lot mm -hmm. more centralized, sort of. Yeah. So uh, I mean, one of the things I, you know, um, think that Australia kind of defines Australian life, middle class lifestyle. 
uh, one of the benefits is is having a car, owning a house, um, and and then you know paying it off the mortgage for thirty years, twenty five years, now forty years now, um, to the point where you own it and you leave it for your children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this was kind of the middle class life, a house with a lawn. Now that's being replaced slowly. Yeah, because the housing prices have hiked up to the point where we can no longer even afford the the ten percent um, deposit to uh, to rent and uh, to to actually get the mortgage from the banks, right? So what is considered what was considered a middle class life when I was little, a house and a yard and a car and kids and whatnot, is changing. It's actually getting less, smaller, more condensed. Mm-hmm. It might be an apartment, yeah. Mm-hmm. Not maybe an apartment with one or two rooms. Maybe no car, maybe a scooter, maybe a bicycle. Yeah. So um, the income and the expense has actually changed. Yes. The, the the proportion of that and the potential of those income and the um, the expenses have actually changed, and that itself is redefining what it means to be a middle class mm-hmm. in Australia. I don't know if it's the same case in Britain. It is actually yes, and it, the, the same. Um, Thing is, is at the, at the root of it, it is rising property prices. That the mm. people who already own properties, mm. they are now sitting on a huge chunk of wealth as price as prices have gone up. Mm. The people who don't, the younger generation, are finding it increasingly difficult to actually buy a house. That, as you say, to, to acquire the money to. Um, uh, get a deposit mm. and then to buy a house is incredibly almost impossible in London um, and this again is causing a great deal of resentment so this this idea of the property owning middle class is under threat because people can't own property because they're too damned expensive but the people who own them mm. eventually they're going to die mm-hmm. and those properties are going to be passed on and this of course um has raised a huge debate as well should they be allowed to pass them on to their their own offspring or should that wealth be taken from them and spread out more evenly inheritance tax we're talking about now but um, isn't that communism <laughs> well, <laughs> right? yeah. that, we're now talking about going from a capitalist economy well, to yeah, com- yeah. speaking yeah. about communism <laughs> I mean if you take away um, I think Karl Marx's you know literary work Das Kapital mm-hmm. right I think the if you take out all the numbers, it's a book, it's a thick book uh, filled with just numbers mm-hmm. from what I remember, right? But if you take away the main message, is talking about that, the rich will continue to get richer and the poorer will just stay there or get poorer, yeah. right? I mean, that's that's really the, the his warning to the world was mm-hmm. that, right? Well, ultimately, no, you said there'd be a crisis in capitalism and yeah. then communism would be, would come about. He never explained you know exactly right. how that would happen, right. and he certainly doesn't envisage you know revolutions and civil wars and what have you, which of course did ensue when it was tried. Um, uh, but I, I think the the concept of the middle class is mm. definitely changing, and I think the the idea that you and certainly I had mm. is definitely changing. It, it's it's becoming more difficult to maintain. This aspirational middle class affluent lifestyle with the house, the lawn, the car, the two foreign holidays a year, mm. even with the education that I had, you know, university, etc., 50% of people in Britain now go to university. Most of them 
or sorry, not most, but a good portion of them leave university and find themselves working as waitresses or waiters or certainly doing jobs that you certainly don't need a degree for. And therefore, their middle class dream has been cut off. But isn't this what Karl Marx talked about? The crisis. We're hitting, we're slowly getting towards the crisis where people are no longer happy. Yes, and and that you, you talk, just, just talked about income taxes and whatnot, mm -hmm. property taxes and whatnot yeah, to in, control that. Inherit. That's kind of like communism coming back to control that. Mm -hmm. So it's this cycle of capitalism leading to a crisis, and then there's some state effort mm -hmm. to curb that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you're talking about this cycle. I mean, it's not, you know, it's, not, it's probably not the crisis that Karl Marx talked about in terms of civil wars and mm -hmm. blood on the streets. Mm -hmm. But we are getting to maybe a subtle one. But it's this repeat of capitalism goes unchecked, something happens when people feel very you know, discontent, and then the government does something drastic action to curb that, mm -hmm. right? Creates new sets of laws to check that, right? So isn't this cycle going on? I personally believe it's actually mm. to do with globalization. Mm. That a huge there's been a huge shift in terms of, of um, available job opportunities from the more developed world to the less developed world um, because the people who work in the less developed world work for less. A simple example is the, um, the person on the end of the phone, when your computer doesn't work, you ring somebody up, a helpline, help me, my computer doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Traditionally, it would have been some middle-class graduate who got a degree in computer science from Aberdeen University who'd answer the phone and tell you how to fix it. Now, your phone, your phone call is rerouted to Mumbai because the graduate who, an Indian guy, is sitting in a, um, a call centre in Mumbai is being paid a quarter of what the university graduate from Aberdeen would expect and therefore the graduate from Aberdeen University is actually working in Costa serving you coffee uh, that is the problem yeah I mean I've got an example closer to home at the moment in the Vosibirsk mm. IT professionals mm -hmm. yeah I mean it's interesting when I first arrived here um, I didn't know this but some of the students were IT um, IT uh, professionals mm -hmm. And the amount of salary they were telling me they were receiving was astronomical. It was like four or five times that of the the kind of the average salary in the VCBS, which is like 30,000 rubles a month. Mm -hmm. They're receiving like 150, 200,000 mm -hmm. if they're seniors. And I was like, well, back in our countries, no way an IT guy, you throw a brick off a roof, you hit an IT guy mm -hmm. in the head, right? And that's the joke, right? Mm -hmm. So I was thinking, why is it that they receive so much? And it's to do with the foreign investment, the currency exchange, what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But um, obviously, it's amplified, mm -hmm. right? So the IT professional here is kind of like what is kind of considered a middle class job where we're from. It's considered like a middle upper class or upper class job mm. in here, right? So I was actually flabbergasted by that. Uh, I was rather, um, but then if you do the currency exchange and if you do that, um, it sort of makes sense. The economics sort of makes sense. You're going to see the, that global economy in effect amongst the IT professionals here. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, so I was really, really, um, yeah, interested. And one of the things that these, uh, that the IT professionals have here in spirit compared to the others is that they feel more free because mm -hmm. they're receiving so much more pay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, is that there's this sense of freedom associated with the salary that they make. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that they can afford those holidays overseas. Mm -hmm. Not just Thailand or Turkey, but other countries, mm -hmm. you know, Japan, Korea, wherever, 
right? Um, that they can afford to have like an uh, investment apartment, yeah, mm-hmm. plus one or plus two, mm-hmm. yeah. So they live that middle class dream that we have back in our countries here, mm-hmm. yeah. And it's very important because the concept of freedom has always been related to the marketing and the propagation of the middle class, I believe. Mm-hmm. So that that definition of freedom is that you can take the job that is um, right for your heart. Yes, that is in line with your heart. That you don't have to do hard labor in a mm-hmm. factory, sweating, you know, mm-hmm. bleeding away your time. That's a sense of freedom. The sense of freedom that you can have the weekend and get away with your family and spend time and not worry about work or being fired. Yes, mm-hmm. in a very in, in a very tough environment. That's a sense of freedom. Yeah. But what I began to see when I was growing up is that the definition of middle class was associated with the freedom. That started um, moving. That. Essentially, it was called financial freedom, and therefore, to become free as a middle class, now you had to be upper middle class. You had to now own properties, which gave you residual income. Yes, mm-hmm. to give you passive income, mm-hmm. right? Now you don't have to. Now, so the definition of freedom became: you don't have to work, and you still make money. Yes, mm-hmm. which is the definition of a middle class or an upper class. Yeah, which what that's the public conception of that, but reality is very different because people who are wealthier usually work harder, yeah, and longer. But um, so, to me, I saw as growing up that the concept of middle class began to shift. The middle class aspiration became an upper middle class aspiration. People were already part of that class. Yeah. So, uh, but now it seems a very different thing altogether. It seems that every you know, there's this sort of uh, culture called a startup culture. Yeah, let's start a business. Let's do a startup. Let's 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 make an app. Let's hit it big. Let's make millions and billions of dollars, right? And let's be all rich. Yeah, there seems to be this aspiration for the kids growing up in the middle class to become super rich, like Elon Musk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm just thinking, what was what was it like when you were growing up? Yeah, well, was there like icons of the super rich upper class that kids aspire to by doing startups and stuff like that? Well, Mike, you see, I'm so old that. When I was growing up, there's no such thing as apps. And computers did exist, mm. but they were huge. Mm. Right? And you certainly didn't have your own. Right? The only people who had them were people like NASA and um, the, the Met Office. Uh, so in order to become super rich when I was growing up, you had to be like Richard Branson and start a record company or become a rock superstar. Um, so that you, the, you know, the quick way to, to riches in those days was that and not you couldn't even become that rich becoming a footballer um so things have changed indeed i don't I, that's one of the problems with this moving away from the, the, the middle classes working class children aspiration is to become rich everyone wants seems to be want to become super rich but the working class kids in britain their route is to become either a professional footballer or simply just to become famous like the Kardashians. How they're actually going to achieve that is never actually um, uh, expressed or planned. It's just a dream. Um, for most of them, it won't happen, obviously. Uh, one thing I do think is that the, 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 the traditional middle-class occupations of lawyer, doctor, accountant, etc., these are under threat. These are very definitely under threat. There could be a huge hollowing out of the middle class caused by the advent of artificial intelligence. When those jobs can be done by a computer or a robot, 
then those jobs will no longer be done by middle-class professionals. What do you, you know, think? what's funny, I don't know about the middle-class professional, but I've seen the sort of working-class professions replaced by those. Mm-hmm. So, and then, um, six months ago, mm-hmm. I was in Seoul for Christmas, yeah. And I went to a McDonald's to, to you know, buy my dad coffee, because he mm-hmm. likes the coffee from there, Americano, Americano, right? And it was full of people, because it was at the train station, there was nothing open at the time, it was early in the morning, it was full of people. And literally, uh, people are ordering on five, one of those booths, mm-hmm. yeah, where you self-order service. The only guy at the counter was the manager. In that B counter, where they actually bring out the food, only one guy was standing there in his blue uniform. And his job was just basically dispense. Dispense, dispense, take the ticket, dispense, take the ticket and dispense, right? It's interesting because it reminded me of my days as a teenager, 15 years old, 14 years old, working at McDonald's, right? Doing those kind of jobs, right? And doing, um, and then making the food inside. It almost feels like that job is now gone. Yeah. Almost felt like that, that, that it's, 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 there's, there are no teenagers making these things. There's no need, right? And then also supermarket checkouts. Mm-hmm. In Australia, almost all of them have been replaced. Yes. So you not only have one or two counters that are open, just in case somebody doesn't have a credit card. Yeah. But for the most part, it's self-service, right? It's all sort of AI-driven. As long as you can operate the AI, yeah, and tell it what to do, you're good. Yeah. That's interesting, actually. Yeah, mm-hmm. I suppose it, this thing of the supermarket, just 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 to digress slightly, mm-hmm. it just shows you the the effects of demand and supply. Um, in Australia, all the supermarket checkout people have been replaced by machines. Mm-hmm. In Britain, that has began, begun, mm-hmm. but there is a resistance to it. A lot of people don't like using this of uh, the self-service checkouts. I'm one of them because that thing always stops or something like yeah, that. If yeah. you want my money, you better serve me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, but they are gradually being replaced. But in Russia, that's not happening at all. And I think I know the reason why. Mm. Because the Australian minimum wage for shop workers is so much higher than the one in Britain. And the one in Britain is an awful lot higher than the one in Russia. Mm. So therefore, the first people to be replaced by the machines are the people who cost the most, which would be the Australian shop assistants, then the ones in Britain, uh-huh. and then lastly, the ones in Russia. Uh-huh. Globalization. If you like what well, some people say, the race to the bottom. Again, the flow of money determines mm. all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I've always believed that. So you told me that you grew up in a uh, sort of a lower middle class family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what did your father do? He was a uh, local government officer, which means he was just a functionary of the local authority. I see. So he was a government worker. Yeah. Okay. So government jobs in Australia are kind of highly valued. There's a lot of competition to get into them. Mm-hmm. And the reason is the benefits are good. Mm-hmm. And after a long service, mm-hmm. the salary becomes actually quite good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a lot of people compete to get into these jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, of course, my dad told me when I was little that if you end up working for the government, you're a loser. So, 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 so I stayed clear away from the government jobs. But um, now that I'm getting older, I think it's actually a viable way towards the middle class dream. In fact, it's probably the the really the best way towards the middle class dream because you ever heard of governments firing people? They don't lay off people generally, mm-hmm. right? So, I thought that maybe the military or any sort of government work is probably the most stable jobs around today. That's certainly the case in terms of your pension. Mm. Um, generally speaking, it has always well. It has always been perceived mm. 
mm-hmm. that in Britain that your if you work for the state, if you've got a government job, you'd be paid slightly less, but they'd look after you better and you'd mm-hmm. get a better pension. That was the trade-off. Mm-hmm. Um, however, in recent years, it appears that the state employee is doing better than the private sector employee in terms of wages they receive during their working life, not just the pension, and they still got the secure pension. And this, of course, is causing uh, yet more friction between the public sector and the private sector, and it's uh, something that surfaces frequently in political debates um, with the coronavirus running rampant through the world, it has brought this sharply into focus because, of course, it's the public sector workers of the health service, of the police, the fire, who stayed at work mm. and had to, mm. yet it is the uh, private sector workers who are actually the ones who are going to lose their jobs when the you know the lockdown finishes and the, the supporting of jobs finishes and the recession hits, and it'll be the public sector workers who will keep their jobs, keep their pensions. So perhaps it's just going to get worse, the friction. Yeah, so we're definitely seeing the flipping of the yeah, the world mm-hmm. in that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so when I was little, I remember government jobs were, you're right, I mean, underpaid, mm-hmm. however stable. Mm-hmm. Now it's becoming sort of, well, pretty well paid. Mm-hmm. And yes, and because of this coronavirus, mm-hmm. they're the ones who kept their money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So maybe if you are uh, somebody who's selling um, the middle class um, dream, yes, the mm-hmm. housing, the food, education, entertainment, the people to market to are the government workers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, perhaps in the future. Yeah. You know, this is the one question that's been on my mind. I've been here for a year now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is was there a middle class in the SSSR? What's your, what's your, I've, I've done some research on this, but what's, mm. what's your research say on this? I would say there probably was. Yeah. I, it, it, your position was perhaps determined by, I mean, I may be wrong, but I mm. think it might have been determined by whether you had a party membership card or not. Mm. Um, you know, if you, if you behaved in the appropriate way and said the right things, you become the factory manager rather than the the, you know, the factory floor sweeper. Um, and you would keep that job and you did have a job for life and you would get your, your two-bed apartment and your larder and your one week on the Black Sea coast um, and it would be guaranteed. Um, am I wrong? <laughs> You know, for me, it seems like the middle class dream, I don't know why, this might be an upper class dream, I'm not so sure um, still, but there was a certain prestige um, of being related to Moscow. So in those days, like for example, you say you graduated of a good university. It was prestigious if you were positioned. So you were posted a job. You were mm. given some sort of a oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So you're told where to go, mm. pretty much, right? And if you were given a position in Moscow, Mm. That was your that was your ticket to uh, the middle class. Uh, yeah. So, but if you were say stationed off in Yakutia, mm-hmm. all the way from in the middle of nowhere, mm-hmm. you've actually went down a class mm-hmm. essentially because you're in the middle of nowhere. You're considered right. So uh, for me, it seemed like location was such a big determiner of what it meant to be a middle class or not. Mm-hmm. If you look at some of the old Soviet films, what is portrayed as the middle class at the time. Were kind of all based off Moscow, mm-hmm. yeah, Moscow and life mm-hmm. yeah, at the time, and I think in some ways it still is like that here, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I kind of see some remnants of that. To be able to go to Moscow and live there means that you've somehow made it into that middle, middle Russian, middle class Russian life. And if you haven't actually made it there, 
you're still sort of a little bit under that. So you're saying that the rest of Russia is now is, is to some extent viewed as a backwater compared with Moscow and perhaps to a lesser extent. If you look at if you talk to the young people here mm-hmm. or in universities and below, mm-hmm. uh, most of them want to go to either Moscow or Leningrad. Yeah, those are the kind of dream cities they want to go and live in. They want the jobs there and therefore makes the job market very competitive. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's the reality of it because I've seen opposite. I've mm-hmm. seen guys from, say, like Leningrad come up, take a position here for a higher salary. Yeah, mm-hmm. they trade that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and they find the job markets very too tough. I'm mm-hmm. talking about the guys who were born in those cities moving here. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Wages are higher there, aren't they, in St. Petersburg and Moscow? Yeah, but if you minus the rent... Yeah, because the rent... Yeah, even, the the, even the metro fares are three times in mm-hmm. Moscow what they are here. <laughs> the food prices <laughs> seem to be the same, mm-hmm. but the rent is what kills it. Yeah, mm-hmm. The rent is what... Again, something to do with real estate. You see mm-hmm. how this middle-class dream is mm-hmm. associated with real estate where mm-hmm. you live. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, I'm trying to piece all these things together in my mind mm-hmm. before I leave the city. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I find that kind of very because, like in Australia, nobody, you know, not every teenager or or aspiring young person wants to come live in Sydney or Melbourne, mm-hmm. which are the two premier cities, right? It's same in it's same in Britain though. Yeah. What is it? I read the other day yeah. something like half mm. of graduates mm. from the Russell Group University, so that's Oxford, Cambridge, Durham, the better ones, mm-hmm. half of them within a year of graduating are living in London. Yeah, there you go. So, and even, um, so in fact, it's actually often the other way around. People who, you know, recently young families, it's actually more of a trend to move out of the big cities mm. and go to the small towns, actually, mm-hmm. right? So downscaling, downsizing seems to be the more, it's, it's becoming more prevalent, Yeah. Wonder if coronavirus will have an effect on that. I'm right sure on. it will. You, know, you can you can socially distance a lot easier in the countryside than you can in, say, London, which is you know you're living on top. It's like a little anthill, isn't it? Millions of people all on top of each other. Mm-hmm. Out in the countryside, you've got space. Yeah, and I think space is freedom. Mm. Yeah, um, and so in effect, we're trying to live a middle class city urban life. We're actually trading away the freedom of space, mm. and maybe instinctively we're realizing that. So we're moving out of the cities to get that freedom. So again, middle class life freedom concept of that is, I think, really, really well associated with each other. Yeah. Well, that has been an interesting chat, wouldn't you say? I would. Yeah. So that was the topic on redefining the concept of the middle class. This is Big Apple School Podcast. Mike and, and John signing off.